Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai. And this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Today I'm joined by the Pakistani writer and novelist Fatima Bhutto. Bhutto is the author of the novels The Runaways and The Shadow of the Crescent Moon. Her latest book is The New Kings of the World, Dispatches from Bollywood, Dizzy and K-pop, which explores the rising popularity of the new pop cultural movements coming out of Asia. Bhutto is, of course, also part of the renowned Pakistani political dynasty. Her grandfather, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, was president of the country. Her father, Murtaza, was a parliamentarian. And her aunt, Benazir Bhutto, was prime minister. Fatima's first book, Songs of Blood and Sword, dealt with her family's complex history and the assassination of her father. After Benazir Bhutto was assassinated in 2007, many wondered whether Fatima would succeed her and follow a political path. But Fatima has instead pursued her own very successful literary career. Yet in both her fiction and her non-fiction, political issues have nevertheless been at the forefront of her writing. Fatima Bhutto, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Faisal. It's great to be with you. I want to start with dangerous ideas. Mm-hmm. You said some ideas are too dangerous to do except in novel form. Give mm-hmm. me an example of an idea that is too dangerous except in a novel. Well, I think any time you are dealing with, um, as you said, political ideas, they're you know flammable ideas. They're not always fireproof. And so my my first novel um, was really about the idea of home. You know, what will you tolerate um, in your home, and what will you refuse? And I think those are quite dangerous ideas because when you let people question things, there's really no limit to what what point they can reach Mm. um you know even to talk about radicalism and to say this is not a this is not to do with muslims this is not to do with islam this is an issue of anger and this is an issue of alienation and isolation i think to say that outside of a narrative um parameter can make people really uncomfortable it can make people really angry but they hear things differently when they come to them in stories you mean that the the discomfort comes from going away from the prevailing wisdom, the prevailing narrative? Yes, I think anytime you're you're questioning a prevailing narrative, or you're suggesting a new way of looking at something, or you're simply um, putting an idea into conflict with another one, um, that that can be. I think it's an exciting thing, but I think many people can can view it as as also a threatening um, issue or a threatening. Um, it can have threatening possibilities. And so you think in some ways it's easier to do that in fiction? Well, I think I think to write anything in fiction is much harder, but I think it's more palatable to people to read it in fiction. Um, I think we let our guards down with fiction. I think, you know, I always say fiction is a kind of Trojan horse. You, you can pack a novel with all kinds of things and people don't really see what's coming for them un- until it's too late. You seem quite interested in exploring political ideas. The, the, mm. You were talking about radicalism. That was from the novel The Runaways. Um, mm. The Shadow of the Crescent Moon is about the war on terror. What do you think draws you to political subjects like that? Well, I think, you know, it would be impossible to live in the world that we do and and not be um motivated by political impulses um politics is in everything and i suppose it's it's always been 
Well, for me, it's a natural way of of looking at things. You know, what you can say, what you can't say, um, what you watch, what you don't watch, where your solidarity is, um, how you dress, all those things are political, I think. And if we think of life as um, a series of actions which which come out of some kind of union or brotherhood or allegiances, then what are those if if not political, really, at the end? But I suppose you always end up writing what it is that you wish you could read. Mm. And I'm I'm drawn to those kind of stories. I'm drawn to things that maybe aren't exactly as they seem, um, you know, that are about the turbulences of, of inner lives. And I suppose you could say those are not political, but but I think they are. You say that you're drawn to subjects that aren't exactly what they seem. That could, some people um, could interpret that as being both about yourself and about the country that you live in. Well, I think is that know, a stretch no, too far? Am I psychoanalyzing? No, no person is what they seem, are they? We we are not what we seem to ourselves. Forget about to strangers. Of course, countries are not what they seem. You know, countries are built on on mythologies, on genesis stories, whether those are connected to reality or not. I think the process of life is about um, aspiring to a certain creation. Um, uh, whether that's a, a creation of the self or a creation of the state. And I guess the process of life is whether you live up to that or not and, and how you stumble and where you succeed and, and where you fail. Do you think that your writing is um, is primarily a form of political expression? Are you trying to, you, you said that the beauty of fiction is that you can approach people with ideas that perhaps they wouldn't be open to otherwise. Are you trying to reach an audience that may not be engaging with nonfiction sources of news and so on, or they might be hostile to the message you are you are writing about? Um, no, I don't really see it that way when I'm sitting down to write. I, when I sit down to write, I'm, I'm writing because an idea has bothered me. Um, it's disturbed me in some way, whether that's a haunting um, or it's you know, an inspiring or invigorating idea. It's something that I'm curious about and for some reason can't let go of. So that's really why why I sit down to work on one idea over another. Mm. And I never really have the intention to say, I think this and now you must also. I, I'm just chasing something that interests me and the things that interest me tend to be um, things that are politically unusual or... Um, maybe countercurrents and and so those are the things that naturally I, I tend to want to follow. I think there there's a danger sometimes when you're writing fiction, particularly you're writing fiction about large political topics like the war on terror and radicalization, these sorts of things. The politics can sometimes overwhelm the fiction. Um, I wonder if you feel that that is somewhere, you know, where you're, yeah. you're writing and your characters become archetypes and the story becomes like a morality tale. Well, I think that's exactly what you want to avoid. You don't want to be moralizing um, to anyone. And and that's really where the work, where the hard work in fiction comes in, is that ultimately you're writing about the inner lives of people and, and the struggles that people um, battle when they are alone. And so you may have a, an, a, a larger political idea like radicalism, but at the end of the day, The Runaways is really about you know young lives. And young lives lived in a world on fire, um, and so I think at the end of the day, it's 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 may may have political shadows and political backgrounds, but 
in order for fiction to be truly felt, it 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 has to be about about the life of the heart, rather than you know the life of of big things of of capitalized things. How do you? I like that of capitalized things. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But how do you manage to fall to avoid falling into that trap when you're writing these characters? Oh well, I think you know if 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 everyone published their first draft, they would end up with a whole host of problems. And I think you avoid these pitfalls by simply rewriting and rewriting and redoing and rethinking and and undoing and redoing, and until you've polished your work to the point where you've 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 hit the bone, you've you've hit exactly the nerve you wanted to hit, rather than just scratch the surface. And I mean that for me is one of the biggest lessons that I keep learning as a writer is that you know the thing you finish in year one. It's not really ever what you want to say. Um, in year two, you might be closer, and you know the the more years you have and and the deeper you go into it, the closer it comes to the truth of of what you're looking for. Do you think also maybe you reach the truth not in book one but in book two or book three? Um, hmm. Well, I suppose there are many different truths because you don't really ever want to be writing the same story over and over again. You want to be dealing with with different struggles and and different explorations. So I think there's room for many different truths and many different investigations. I don't think it it needs to be singular. It might be that you might return to some of these topics, but in a different form. Well, I don't know. I mean, personally, I can tell you that I I don't want to write about radicalism uh, again. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I, spent, I spent four years thinking about it. And I I felt that I dedicated and sustained my attention to it for that time and and now I'm free of it. Now I don't. Now I'm not haunted by it. I'm not thinking about it. I'm I'm thinking about other things. Mm. And so I don't know if we return. Maybe in small ways. Maybe in micro um, explorations. But I think one of the one of the joys of being a writer is that you're constantly learning and and you're constantly being taken into into new directions. You do speak as if you love the process of writing, and I wonder if sometimes you feel that because of the name you're being pigeonholed as a political writer when when you are a writer in bold more um i do really uh love the craft of 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 writing and and i'm curious about what it means for someone to sit with a thought um and to and to trouble their own thoughts so I do enjoy that very much. And I, I think that's probably what keeps me a writer all these years later, is that I, I can only bring that to the table. Um, I can't bring any more than that. And if I were to start bringing in ideas of what people might think um, or what people might read into what I'm saying based on my name, I think it would be debilitating. And so... I'm lucky that I'm I'm able to to zone that out. Um, and of course, people bring all kinds of things to any anything they read. You know, whether it's written by someone from a political background or, or someone from um, a totally normal background. So mm. that I think it can't be helped. And the only thing you can do is be sincere in your in your own impulses, and hopefully that 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 leads you somewhere honest. You know, some science fiction writers, you know, they'll if they're female, they'll use initials or something like that. Sure. Yeah, so it's that sort of thing that you're going to be judged by something anyway, regardless. Well, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we live in a world of judgment, and we're all experts about everything, as it turns out. Um, it turns you know, out, yeah. Social media has turned everybody into, you know, a pundit overnight. You know, anything that happens in the world um, by the next morning, 
you know, Susan from Iowa um, is an expert on it. You know, that's that's sort of fun in a way, um, but it's it's also exhausting and it would be untenable to keep up with that kind of thing. So I think we have to be led by our our, our own interests and and hope that eventually we're really talking about human experiences and 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 that's what will touch people rather than who in particular wrote about that experience. Yeah, you 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 mentioned social media. I I wonder, I mean, you're very good on social media. You have a large following, of course, but you're quite active on social media. And I wonder if that impacts the way you write, because a lot of the writing that you do is very, it requires a lot of careful, almost solitary thought, which is something that social media is very bad at. Yeah, it's really bad. And I, I'm as guilty as anyone in that every day, I think I'm not going to look at Twitter. And then, you know, at some point you find yourself down some kind of rabbit hole reading a 45 part thread about something you know completely absurd <laughs> yeah. but um but i i try to i try to dose it um when i'm working i i try really hard not to spend too much time um in social media just because i think it just makes us stupider you know it's um it's fast and and when you're thinking you can't move at that pace you need to be as you said um solitary reflective introspective and um yeah i think the pandemic has been quite good at at souring a lot of people's love affair with <laughs> with social media with social media <laughs> almost too much of it yeah it's too much and it's too much of the same thing and it's getting tiring i don't know if you remember the you know the big shipping um containers that was stuck of course and, yeah and, in, and there in these, the suez in the suez and there were these the, great uh, memes there are these fantastic memes, um, you know, in that typical kind of color, you know, bright social media um, design of, you know, are you worried about what's happening in the Suez? Here's how you can help. And, you know, you you, you click the next image and it's like, you can't help. There's absolutely nothing. You, can <laughs> you can't way. help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we have reached that point, haven't we, in, in, in late technology where it's really, it's really too exhausting. I mean, how much can we do this for? Yeah, one of our team members uh, makes a point about this, that people feel the desire to signal their views on, on big topics like Ukraine. They'll say, I am not in favor of the invasion of Ukraine. <laughs> and you're like, who's asking you, mate? As you say, <laughs> Susan from Idaho, who's asking you, you and your 24 Twitter followers? Yeah, it's true. And and I think it's such a wonderful thing to just be able to say, you know, I don't want to tell you my opinion or I have no opinion. Well, I have no opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. my opinion is going to stay with me. And mm. I think, you know, we we all have opinions. Of course, we have opinions about everything, but it doesn't mean that all of them are interesting or valid or need to be shared mm. um, exactly at the moment we have them. You said that once about fiction, that the beauty of writing fiction is that you get to have the idea and it's almost like a secret in yourself for a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I, you know, writing, as you said, is is a very solitary, lonely act. But when you're working on nonfiction, as, as you know, you you might interview people, you might um, talk to people, you might go out to find something, to observe something. And, you know, at, at, at any point that you're doing that, someone asks you what you're working on and you can't say, I won't tell you, you have to, you have to give them a little, a little bit of information. Yeah. But to write fiction um, is really to be alone with your thoughts. And, and that's probably what makes it so much harder. Um, but it's also what makes it more magical in a, in a strange way. Um, I think it's really 
a rare moment where where we are able to sustain attention to something for 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 a significant period of time, and where we are challenging ourselves as as people um, to go beyond our initial uh, reactions or our initial impulses. And and to me, that's very exciting because I, I can't really think of many other occasions in life where, where you're allowed to do that, um, except writing mm. fiction. You started teaching as well recently. You now teach classes on political fiction. I yeah. wonder. Mm. Yeah, I wonder if you think that there's something different about writing political fiction as opposed to another type of writing. Well, you know, with the pandemic, things sort of changed a little bit. And the things that we used to do in, in the before times, like do talks or do book events or travel and go to literary festivals all kind of migrated online and i i taught a few writing courses and i did two on or maybe i did more than two um i can't remember now, on on political fiction and i think there is an idea that it's non-western writers that write political fiction you know that western writers are allowed to write about um you know a mother and a relationship and childhood and, and all those kind of things. They're allowed to have these suburban stories of innocence and whatever. Yeah. And, and that it's Eastern, it's, you know, writers from the global South who, who are forced to grapple with, um, with politics. But, but I really don't want to read any stories about, you know, the mother at home baking lasagna or whatever. I mean, I think we've read so many of those. It's not It's not that there's nothing interesting about that. It's that it's been done for so long. Um, and it's tiring, really. And, and I think that writers who are fighting the world around them are always going to be more interesting than that kind of solipsistic writer that's just thinking about themselves and their own life and their four walls around them. And And those are always the stories that I'm interested in 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 as a reader and so I wanted to I guess I wanted to I, I enjoy the the idea of teaching I enjoy the idea of talking to writers um, but I wanted to talk to writers who are maybe interested in the same thing and and who who want to talk about big things but but aren't quite sure um, how to build them I guess one of the reasons why books about the internal lives of people within, as you say, the four walls, one of those reasons why so many Western writers gravitate towards that is that, frankly, people don't need to worry in the West about the outside world imposing upon those four walls. That's something that you grapple with yourself in terms of, I mean, the war on terror, in terms of your relationship with Pakistan and the American experience. Well, I think it's I think it's a it's a mistake for for Western writers to think they don't have to worry about the outside world because of course we've seen they very much do, and the world is changing and power is changing in the world and you know the West is not going to be what the West was very soon. Um, we already see so many threats and challenges and, and anxieties um, creeping over the West. Mm. So I think it's probably time to start thinking beyond their four walls, but. Um, but I think the rest of us have always had that sense um, that we're under threat from somewhere or something. Mm. And, and that that threat sometimes is nameable, sometimes it's not nameable, um, but that we are connected um, to borders far beyond our own in, in good ways and in, 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 in less good ways, in dangerous ways. And, and I think, I don't, I mean, I think to recognize that is not a bad thing. I think it's an, it's an important thing. And uh, all the interesting writing that, that I can think of of the last few years 
um, seems seems to be working within that that space. You would very much situate yourself as a writer from the global south. Is that right? Well, yes. I mean, I'm Pakistani, and and um, you know, I've most of my life has been spent either in Syria, where I grew up as a child, or in Pakistan. And I've, I, of course, lived abroad and studied abroad. And um, but but that's not where I see myself as as belonging to now. Do you move very seamlessly though between those those two worlds or those multiple worlds? I mean, I, I certainly get the sense that you are as comfortable. You studied in New York. You're as comfortable mm. in New York as you know as you are in Lahore or Islamabad. Um, I, I, that's probably true. That's probably fair to say. And I think, I, I think there's no place where one is truly comfortable or one is truly at home. Um, you know, there are things that make me uncomfortable in Lahore, and there are things that make me comfortable uncomfortable in America. Um, and and that's, I mean, you know, I, I tend to travel a lot, or at least uh, I did travel a lot. And part of the education of travel is that you never really know what makes you uncomfortable um, until you experience it. But, you know, of course, the post 9-11 years changed that a lot because it didn't matter what you felt. Um, it was also how you were seen. Mm. Your latest book, New Kings of the World, is nonfiction and explores how American pop culture is losing its global dominance to a new wave of Asian cultural imports, Bollywood movies, Turkish soap operas, K-pop from Korea, and so on. Mm. And you argue that these are successful because they speak to an audience who are still living through the transition between traditional ways of life and quote-unquote modernity. Mm. What do you mean by this transition to modernity? Well, I think it's um, it's it's assumed, you know, when people talk about globalization, we're, we're, we talk about it often in this kind of flippant way, you know. It's a state of understanding, it's a state of being, it's entirely positive, it's dynamic, and you're either in it or you're out. But it's an incredibly turbulent path, um, the path of globalization. And for every for every passenger that it takes to some kind of summit, it drowns hundreds of others um, underneath its enormous pressures and anxieties and and difficulties. And and so this is important in 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 many ways. We see it in in so many places in the real world in real politics. Um, but when we talk about culture and we talk about what it is that people are responding to. It's quite clear that American culture, American pop culture, which, you know, generations have grown up on, myself included, at one point was aspirational. It spoke to that that journey, you know, an aspirational journey um, to a place of opportunity and wealth and comfort and ease, a frictionless ease. But but reality, of, of course, is one thing and 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 that promise I don't think was very much built in reality. So who benefits from that promise? You know, who is living the life of friends in New York, um, mm. thanks to globalization? But but really what most people struggle through is the Squid Games um, journey. You know, mm. this unwinnable, uh, exhausting, um, terrorizing passage. That's really the experience of, of most of of the foot soldiers of globalization and so where are they seeing that and you know they're not seeing it in in american television shows they're not seeing it in american movies um the way that america used to be able to speak to people's experiences or dreams has has changed and 
other cultures and other countries are figuring that out and they're doing a much better job. They're more sophisticated at talking to that terrorizing passage um, than Western pop culture. Well, the examples, the two examples you gave of, of Friends and then now of Squid Game are quite good because actually they speak, Squid Game particularly speaks to people within the West as well. Because as you say, it's not the case that all Americans are living the life of Friends. Some of them are living the life of Squid Game. Absolutely, absolutely. In a place where a COVID hospitalization bill can reach a million dollars, you know, or can reach hundreds of thousands of dollars, of course they're living in 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 a real life squid game. Mm. And it was it was it was really odd to see all these American articles after Squid Game became the viral show that it that it that it is, no. saying, oh, Squid Game reminds, you know, um, Asians of North Korea. No, it doesn't. It actually reminds them of South Korea. It is based in South Korea. This <laughs> yeah, is the story yeah. of capitalism. Mm. This is not the story of communism. This is very specifically about um, the climb to neoliberal, you know, wealth. Yeah. yeah, very much. It reminds Americans of America, actually. Absolutely. And so... You know, it was it was quite funny to see that uh, being written by perhaps the same people who were lauding the show as, as hard hitting. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking when they were watching it, but but this is the world we live in. And you know, if you're looking at what's coming coming out of Korea, I mean, obviously Parasite is another great example that um, got a lot of attention. Yeah, um, it it speaks to that anxiety. It speaks to that that. Um, completely unstable ground that that so many people are trying to build lives upon um, in a way that I just, I can't think of what the American equivalent would be, at least not not anything I can think of in recent years. Yeah, maybe not something from studios in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, more independent films perhaps. But, mm. um, but you know, New Kings of the World was really about mass culture. Um, it wasn't about independent culture um, because if we're talking about indie culture, that's a whole separate story we're talking about um the number of eyeballs on 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 a show or or on a production and culture itself works so incredibly quickly um that you know if i was rewriting new kings of the world today i would i would change the countries up actually i wouldn't i, I wouldn't focus i wouldn't do india anymore mm. because bollywood has been obliterated by the indian right wing it's just it's not the same thing it was when i when i wrote the book I mean, already then it had changed, but um, but it's another it's another thing altogether today. You open the book with a quote from the Ayatollah Khomeini, who's not a a man usually associated with K-pop. Um, but the quote <laughs> says, the quote says, "In a country, the road to reform travels through culture." Why do you think that was the quote that needed to open the book in particular? Oh, I like the idea that Khomeini said it, and. And I think, you know, at the time, it, it, we, if we think of when he said it, um, it's a very prescient thing to say. And and I think it's true, you know, we come to culture innocently. Um, we come to culture as spectators and as people who want to be entertained. But the makers of culture are not acting in innocence. They are acting um, with quite specific intentions. And those intentions, of course, can be personal, you know, that they want to put forward an idea. But let's also not forget that cultural industries receive a lot of government funding. You know, the CIA has a department um, for film writers, script writers, for movie makers. And, you know, if you're telling a story that's particularly interesting to the CIA, they'll help you. They'll give you funding. They'll help you with research. They might even help you with like hardware. Yeah. Um, 
you know, films like Zero Dark Thirty, of course, benefited from this, from these offices. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know why we think only the Russians are doing that or, you know, only the Chinese are doing that. No, the Americans are doing it. The French are doing it. The Israelis are doing it. Everyone's doing that. So we, we have to look at culture um, also through what, what politics are being pushed through these products. Um, what ways are they trying to change our thinking? Um, and it's it's really quite a sophisticated and insidious thing that that that's happening there. It was one of the, the examples you give is of Turkish television, the soap operas. Mm-hmm. Um, and you describe the heroes of these soap operas in a way in a way that I thought was quite insightful. It says that they are modern but not westernized. And mm-hmm. I thought that was quite an important distinction, but it's also a distinction that is often, flattened. So I think it's important to talk about what the distinction actually is. What what does it mean to you to be modern but not westernized? Well, you know, it's 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 so many things, isn't it? I mean, we're all modern in the sense that we are um we're working in global economies, we are um fluid and flexible, we are yeah, we are tied completely to technology, right? So we are not living um, in, a, in a backwards era. But at the same time, what does it mean not to be Western? I think for a lot of us people in the global South, we associate that with a lack of tradition, with a lack of ethics, if not morality. Um, you know, a Turkish hero drives a BMW or drives a Mercedes. He drives a, a fast car. He works in a bank. He has an iPhone. He lives in a city. You know, all those things are modern. But when his mother enters the room, he stands up. When his grandfather um, comes into the room, he kisses his hand. When it's a choice between himself um, and his own comfort and the success and safety of the family, he will always choose the family. When it comes to yielding or resisting corruption, um, he will do it not just for himself, but for the society that has protected him until that point. So I think that's what the Turks have done incredibly successfully, is that they have their shows and their heroes and their characters of course, I don't mean in the historical epics, but in, in the sort of modern tales. These are people who are living in the 21st century. They are children of the 21st century, but they are not um, a wayward generation. They are not a corrupted generation. They are still led by a certain kind of ideal and principle and value. And that's what makes them so beloved to audiences all around the world. But do you see in that a certain element of propaganda in the way that you've talked oh. about it existing with the Americans? Of course, of course. Every, as I said, every, everyone is doing it. You know, Turkey is imagine, is reimagining itself in its television shows. You, you would be forgiven, I think, to watch a Turkish dizzy and then be confused upon landing in Ankara to find that it doesn't exactly look like what you've been watching all this time. But, but, but that's... That's what everyone is doing. They're reimagining themselves. They're telling new stories about who they are, what their country means, and what it is like to live there, um, what it is like to live well in their countries. And I think that's quite an important thing to do, actually, for a lot of our own countries. And I always say this about mine. You know, in Pakistan, we have constantly this problem of our incredibly rich heritage of artists and um filmmakers, singers, 
writers butting up against censorship. And I always think, why would you want to show the story of yourself as insecure? Um, you know, show, uh, uh, show the story of yourself as, as confident, as being brave in the world, as not being threatened by your own ideas. Um, show a new story. Why can't there be 10 different stories of Pakistan, you know, and one can be modern, one can be conservative, one can be whatever. Mm. Um, the, in order for us to rethink where we are going, um, I think we have to allow that we have many different types of existing in whether it's Turkey, Turkey or Pakistan or the Middle East. And and all those ways are valid. We, we live in them every day. You know, if you're living in the Middle East, you know how diverse society is and how um, different religions and different backgrounds and different ways of thinking coexist in, in, an, in an unusual, perhaps, but in a very sophisticated kind of harmony mm. and symmetry. Why, why shouldn't our culture show that too? What then do you think are the political implications of this cultural movement then? If you, you look at the big picture and you say, well, what changes will happen in the world when Hollywood and the version of the world that Hollywood is putting out is no longer dominant in global culture? Well, I think, it, I think it, it, it's early to say really what the effects are. But, I, but if we look at, for example, those of us who are not American, if we look at what we know about America or what we think about America, how much of that is built from, from American culture? I mean, a massive amount, I would say. Um, this idea of America as a land of opportunity, as a democracy, as you know, a place where anything is possible and you can be a street sweeper one day and then the president the next. This, is, this was being fed to us um, night and day by their films, by their shows that made us laugh and cry and, and, and want to be a part of their story. So who's going to tell the best story now? I think that will that will be interesting. I don't know what the answer is, but I think it will change what it is we we seek in the world, um, what it is that we will aspire to, what kind of lives we will want to build, and what kind of communities um, we will we will dream of, of of being a part of. I think that's all very much up for grabs at the moment. Interestingly. I wanted to talk a bit uh, about your personal life. You've, you're on the record as saying that you wouldn't be a writer if it wasn't for your father. Um, yeah. You said, this is the quote, I wouldn't have the confidence to do any of what is required to be a writer had it not been for my father. What did your father give you that was so vital? Um, I so many things, really. It, it was my father who from as early as I can remember, um, not only allowed me to have a voice, but encouraged it and never, never put it down, never told me, oh, don't say that, or you mustn't speak now, <laughs> or this isn't, you know, this is a place for adults. Or He always in encouraged me to talk and always made me feel that I had a right to whatever it was I thought, whether he agreed or anyone else agreed. I had a right to defend myself and I had a right to question things. And I think for a woman, that's that's an incredibly important thing to teach um, a young girl, to teach a child. But at the same time that he did that, um, it was also that he that he he met whatever I said with with a great sense of freedom. So I was allowed to say things to my father and not feel afraid. And I think to be a writer, you you do need that. Um, I think to be secure in the world, you, you need that. 
it's not to say that I, you know, you told me I was always right. There's plenty of disagreement and plenty of questioning. Um, but to feel safe, um, to feel encouraged, to feel that you have something to say. Um, you know, these are lessons that my my father was killed when I was very young, but they've carried me through my my entire life, through the many, many years I've had to live without him. And and on another level, it was he, he who took me to libraries first. And I remember very much the first time he took me to a library. He treated it with so much um, respect. It was such a sacred um, place. And it was such a solemn moment that I remember thinking I was about to be a part of something extraordinary. <laughs> And and that's never left me. And I'm I'm glad he did that. I'm glad my father didn't do that to me with things, with objects or with um ephemeral things, you know, things that don't last or that don't mean anything. I'm I'm so glad he did that to me with books. Um, because it's it's been a refuge and and it's been a, a place of great joy for me to to have whatever life has has taken me through. There's always been that refuge. You speak with obviously a great deal of warmth about your father. Um, I would imagine that obviously his assassination must have been a pivotal moment in your life, perhaps the pivotal moment in your life. Do you think that there are echoes of that experience in in your work? I think so. I think a lot of my work touches on on um, well on on a kind of sadness, perhaps, or um, a loneliness and. And there is violence. It it has touched on on violent shocks, and one is always trying to to understand, I guess, what, the things that bother us and the things that hurt us. And in that sense, yes, it would be um, it would be impossible to avoid in my work, um, and in many many years, it's been impossible to avoid in in my life. But um, I suppose grief is a is a movable thing and at times it feels overwhelming and incredibly sad and suffocating and at other times grief is a reminder of of treasure and of of things that we loved and and moments of great joy and life I suppose is is about moving between those two poles you've published very widely but you're still a, a young writer i was surprised actually to think that you haven't written anything that features your father as a character. And I wondered if it, that was interesting to me because, of course, your father was a very public figure. So mm. I thought that would might be a way of reclaiming it, you know, in a private way. Mm. Well, I, my, my first proper book was was about my father's life and, and, and his assassination. And so I maybe I, I don't know, I've never thought about it, actually. But I, I suppose I, that was the book, really, that... Um, I wrote about my father and I wrote for my father. But no, it's never occurred to me really to um, to write about him in, in any other way. Uh, maybe because, you know, as with anything we love, um, some part of it is always there anyways, um, in, in less visible ways, whatever it is we do. It would be strange to talk about political fiction with you without talking about political fact. And you are a member of a political dynasty that is inextricably linked with the history of modern Pakistan. Mm. Do you feel connected to that dynasty since it seems you have taken several steps away from it? 
Well, there's always a big gulf between, um, I suppose, looking at something from inside and, and from outside. From from my vantage point, it's not a dynasty. It's um, a family in the same way anyone else would have a family. You know, there's um, it's populated by people rather than um, by how powerful those people are or, or were. Um, whereas from the outside, it might look more strategic or, you know, yeah acts of great decision for me growing up I always wanted to be a writer it was always the thing I dreamed of doing and and so I feel very fortunate to be able to do what it is I I love um if tomorrow I I felt very strongly that I wanted to you know be more political or or work directly in politics and I, I would do that um so it's not really a question of you know making distance or keeping distance this is just really always where I've where I've intended to head and and I feel good about um that decision so far I mean but you never you never know I guess no. is that something though that you could imagine being involved in some way in politics you know I don't I don't really know because I you know I get asked all the time and and the truth is you know I never have the same answer because if you catch me on one day the answer is no and if you catch me on another the answer could be maybe I it it really depends. I I think at the moment, and by moment I mean <laughs> the last twenty years. In this period, um, I really feel that my interests and my um, my way of being political uh, has has been served well by writing. It it has allowed me to talk about exactly the things I want to talk about. It's allowed me the freedom to say exactly what I think um, and to be true to what I think. And so I don't I don't feel I'm missing anything at the moment. Actually, that was something I was going to ask, because I you said in an interview once that writing is a form of doing. And yeah. of course, politics is doing. I wonder if it was if it's reasonable to see your work as the continuation of politics by other means. I think I think so. I mean, it's not that I, I set out to do that. Um, but when I write um, an op-ed piece, for example, or when I write um, a long essay about something, um, like, for example, you know, the, the remaining Pakistani prisoners in Guantanamo, that to me is quite a political act. It is saying um, that if there is a line in the sand, this is where I stand, according to that line. Um, and, and it requires obviously a, a clear thought about where you want to stand and why you want to stand there. And, and so for me, that's as political as, as anything else would be. But, you know, obviously um, there is a difference between writing about something and um, being on the ground. I, it's not that I think they're equal, they serve d- different purposes. Um, but, you know, how we think about ourselves, how we think about our countries, how we think about our responsibilities and our roles, I think writing is a is an important part of that. I think it would be fair to say that your life has been scarred by violence. That's not an unfair thing to say, is it? No, no. that would be quite I, correct. Yeah. And I think, but yet when I hear you speak, you seem very controlled, very optimistic, very open to the, the joys of the world. You certainly seem to find joy in popular culture, as we see in the book across many cultures. I wonder how you reconcile your lived experience with that optimism and that openness to the world. 
because it wouldn't be an unreasonable thing for someone who has experienced some of the, the challenges that you have to retreat from the world to some degree. Well, I think it's, you know, you asked me earlier about my father and what it was he gave me. And, and one of the vital things he gave me was a sense that the world is a beautiful place and a just place and that we have to move in it with a kind of gentleness and, and, and reverence and, and wonder. And so just because bad things have happened to me is not a reason um, to set fire to the world. It's it's obviously traumatic and it's it's obviously something that that has caused pain but but i think i, I it would be a disservice really um not just to me but uh, to the many people who who i loved who gave their lives to live in bitterness and in anger and unhappiness um you know for whatever bad things happened and whatever violence um was close to me I've also been incredibly lucky. I've been incredibly, incredibly lucky to um, have love and, and guidance and be given a certain way of thinking and seeing the world. And so I feel it's a duty um, to hold on to that and, and to always try and see beyond one's own pain. Uh, of course, it's a process. It's not, it is not to say... <laughs> Um, that one is bulletproof or um, immune from being shattered. Um, you know, we are always shattered. I, I certainly have been. Um, but when one is shattered, one can rebuild. And as long as we're alive, I think we have a duty to keep rebuilding. You say you have a sense of duty to that idea. Do you feel you have a sense of duty to Pakistan? You've been, your family's been involved in politics. And even though I said earlier that you see yourself as somebody, as a member of the Global South, I think it's probably also fair to say you, you do situate yourself very much as a Pakistani. Yes, and, and, and I am. And I think that in, in certain ways, we all have duties, um, not just me, but all Pakistanis have duties to their country. But Pakistan also has a duty to us. Um, and so I, I take it as a... Um, as a real relationship in a sense, it's not only that, that we are, ought to be at the service of our country, but our country ought to also be at the service of its people. Um, what is Pakistan without any of us? What is Pakistan without all its um, sons and daughters? And I, I do think we struggle on both sides um, to, keep, to keep faith sometimes with that duty or that connection. Um, but I do have it and I do feel it. And and I do feel again that my country has has given me so much, has taught me so much, um, has really made me the person I am. You know, if I if I hadn't grown up in Karachi, um, you know, I I would be a different person. I would I'd be a more fragile person, maybe. I'd I'd be a more frightened person. So so I'm I'm grateful. Um, and I guess as one gets older, you know, that kind of duty changes or it evolves in different ways and it's it's been it's been um it has been a relationship of great evolution i would say when you say that the country has a duty towards its people it sounds as if you are edging towards a criticism of the political culture and you have criticized pakistan's political culture mm -hmm. um in the past you don't necessarily seem to wade into day-to-day -day arguments though 
I wonder mm. if you feel that that's because that's not your place as a writer or because you are more comfortable talking about the ideas rather than the policy. Um, you know, it's 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 been some years that I, you know, when I was writing, for example, a, a newspaper column in Pakistan for a Pakistani paper, I did wade into more day-to-day -day issues because you've got to write something every week, you know, so right. you, you're responding to things at a different rate. Um, so there are times I have done that, and then there are times I haven't. When I haven't, it's also because there's only 24 hours in the day, and, you know, you really can't spend all of them arguing about um everything that happens sometimes the thing that happens has happened before and you've already said what you had to say about it um but if there's anything i feel strongly about then then i then i do say it i mean there are things obviously that i don't comment on because i'm still learning because i i'm not sure what i think and i'd like to watch and read and and listen and learn more before i um before i enter a conversation personally I wanted to ask you a bit about Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, you were born in Kabul, so I imagine the events of the past year have been very impactful for you. What did it feel like watching the Taliban retake control of the city that you were born in? Well, I've tried for years to go back to Afghanistan. And gosh, I mean, um, more than 10 years, I mean, since 2007, six, I've been trying to go back and it's never happened for one reason or the other. Um, so it's a place that that has a, a, a great emotional resonance for me. But but I've never I've never been as as an adult. I was uh, just a few months old when we left. Um, but you know, to watch uh, what happened last summer uh, really was extraordinary. And and I don't think one necessarily had to. I imagine it's what what people felt um, during the Vietnam era. You know, the idea of an empire um, being brought to its knees is a is a is an extraordinary thing to watch. Um, whether you are part of that empire, you're outside it, um, you're a critic, you're a supporter of it, um, it is extraordinary to watch. And and for me to watch what happened in Afghanistan was a really important reminder that for for whatever power one has, um, for whatever military technological prowess one might have, um, when you go to fight people in your in their homes, you can't win. You just do can't. you think? Do you think the let's say the exposure of the empire's feet of clay will have a knock-on impact around the world? I think it's having it right now with Russia and Ukraine. <laughs> You know, if America had not said it will be three months before the Taliban take Kabul, only to be proved wrong in six days, um, would would Russia be doing what they're doing in Ukraine? I don't think so. I think I think we're watching all these um, sparks um, fire off, um, and and I think we will have many more of these sparks in the coming years. I heard a quote from the late science fiction writer Ursula Le Guin that I wanted to share with you because I think it's relevant, not just for Afghanistan, but for what we're talking about more widely. Um, the quote is, hard times are coming when we'll be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now, can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine real grounds for hope. We'll need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, realists of a larger reality. Does that in some way resonate with you, this need for alternative visions? Oh, yeah, that it's wonderful to hear um, 
Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, yeah, it resonates very strongly with me. Um, I, you know, the only thing that I, I'm not sure writers ever really provide any solutions, um, but I do think they see through. They see through all the neuroses and all the all the artifice um, of our societies and our worlds, and I, I do think they're they're valuable in in seeing through those things to what it is that we all want. You know, hope, survival, um, justice, um, peace. I, I think writers are are necessary for that, and even if I wasn't a writer it would give me sustenance um, to be able to read writers like Le Guin, um, especially in, in dark and troubled times. I wanted to end on a personal note by asking you about your fondness for dogs. <laughs> um, it's something that definitely comes through from your Twitter account. Yes, I do. I, you know, in my, in my old age, I've become really one of those kind of people who who thinks about animals a lot i never i i didn't used to be i always loved dogs um but i think i've become very attuned to the world of dogs and animals because there's a cruelty um all around us that i think we've become numb to um maybe part of that is social media you know that we're not only reading our own newspapers we're getting information from all over the world and we have we have understood the world to be a cruel place. And so we tolerate it in, in so many ways. And I think we live in an angry time. And I think people are angry for plenty of good reasons, because like we said, the world is uncertain. People struggle to, to feed their families. People struggle to make lives of dignity and, and honor. And that anger is coming out in, in, in frightening ways. And I think part of it is is through this cruelty, which is now touching almost everything that humans can touch and you know what what we have done to the natural world what we do to the wild world um even the domesticated tamed uh, formerly wild world i think is something we ought to watch um and it's something we ought to watch because we ought to be better and we ought to be better all the time and and our failings um towards animals and the planet is 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 a really big sign of that for me. Plus, I just love dogs. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you wrote a a very moving piece called "The Hour of the Wolf" about your dog Coco. Um, it's yeah. I mean, it's about your dog, but it's also about grief and loss and compassion and what our relationships with animals say. And near the end of that essay, you ask yourself why you're not writing about serious things. But it's clear that you really do regard this as a serious thing. And when you break it down into these, into kind of its constituent beliefs, like the belief in the importance of empathy in caring for the innocent and in, in not abusing power and care for the natural world, as you were saying, it seems to me that your love for animals is really the core foundational value of your worldview. It is, it is. And it, it has certainly grown um, and grown and expanded in size. Um, you know, so much of what we've lived through in the last two years, a lot of it is really down to a lot of selfishness. You know, we see it every day that people, people who are healthy think nothing about people who are not. People don't want to inconvenience themselves um, so that others might not get ill. Um, it, it makes me despair. And, and then you see animals who are creatures of forgiveness and, and total love, really, and acceptance. And 
Um, and it's a reminder of how 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 bad we have been with each other as people, how unthinking and how careless we have been with each other for me. So I, I do I do take it pretty seriously. And I've learned a lot. I mean, I have three dogs and and I've learned so much from them about, as you said, about about abusing power, about what it means to be thoughtful, about what care means, about what our responsibilities to weaker things ought to be and how often we fail. Fatima Bhutto, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Fatima's latest book is New Kings of the World, dispatches from Bollywood, Dizzy and K-pop and can be found in all good bookshops. You can follow her on Twitter at FButo. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favourite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you.